I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to spend four hours in nature recording our observations. To help assess Brett and I's naturalistic intelligence, I asked naturalist Pete Cooper to join us. Pete's an ecologist with the Derek Gow Consultancy working on species reintroduction in the UK. For bonus content and the full video from our challenge, be sure to subscribe to the Theory Gang newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. Enjoy. Like the cheese on Domino's, it flows. It flows like my hose. You look thuggalicious. It's also flattened. Like, what the fuck? Ken's going to be so mad because his hat is flattened. So we need Pete in this one, I think. I'm going to ask Pete to do... Oh, <laughs> the perfect timing! Shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> be the only one sitting outside without sunglasses on. <laughs> no, we just decided we we're going to record a TikTok. <laughs> Excellent. I highly recommend. Would you like to participate in the TikTok? Well, well down for it. Well down okay. for it. Oh, my God. Okay. How are you, Pete? I'm not too bad, actually. Just on holiday at the moment in lovely Cornwall with the sun out, which only happens usually on three days a year in the UK. So I'm just making the most of it and getting my freckle tan. Oh yeah. my gosh. In your naturalistic yeah. glory. I'm going to put my sunglasses on for you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, see, we got C and everything. Oh my God. Doing fantastic. See, we picked the right one for this challenge. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, completely. I mean, I mean, it is... Oh, still ecologically fairly sterile compared to what it should be but it still looks pretty there is, yeah. is it sterile naturally or is there a human call oh, human yeah i mean it was, it was older leopold who said that one of the uh, punishments of being an ecologist i'm paraphrasing here slightly one of the punishments of being an ecologist is waking up to realize that one lives in a world of wounds because we've basically sterilized the land certainly in the uk for about three thousand years basically when we started farming that's more or less when it started. But in the last couple of centuries, with mechanization of agriculture, with the applying of nitrates and phosphates onto the land, we've screwed over the very soils before you even get to the species on top. So what you're looking at there is a very different landscape to what would be there naturally. And even if you try and let it go a bit, in some cases, we just have buggered things up so much that it's very difficult for it to reinvent itself because the soils are weaker, because there's too much nitrate in it, all that kind of thing. So when people look at a green and pleasant land like that and they think, oh, what? lovely natural beauty oh, there's very little nature left in there i mean around here you've got these lovely little valleys on the cliff tops where it's difficult to get cattle grazing and you can't do any agriculture there and you do get some sort of vegetation communities that are sort of a bit more what you'd expect in a sort of a natural baseline but it's little corners here and there basically so it's like oh, yeah. window dressing of a natural environment. Really, it's just yeah. like our human domiciles themselves. It really is just, we're going to make it look as much as possible like this. But it, uh, you scratch the surface ever so slightly and there isn't much there. Yeah, completely. This is like um, fucking sad boy ecology. I don't want Yeah, to. that's my disclaimer. If you really sort of don't want to get depressed, then hanging out with ecologists is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> you seem very chipper and upbeat though. I mean, your TikToks oh, yeah. are hilarious. Yeah, at the end of the day, there is that side of it. But the other side of it is that nature is also the most wonderful thing. And if you can do as much as you can, not necessarily trying to hold on to what little is left, but trying to 
put back as much as possible as we can support, then actually it's a very life-affirming thing. The way I see it, sounding completely unscientific for a minute, even though I have been educated to a scientific background, is at the end of the day, the reason I love nature so much, it's the closest thing in this world to magic. It just is. It has been for millions of years. It's not going to change that anytime soon. And in all the sort of weird fictions that create for ourselves as human, I think the guy, I can't remember his name now, the chef wrote Sapien. Yuval Noah Harari. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the way he said that our lives as humans is based around stories, be it literal stories, but also economies and laws, etc. It's all effectively something we've created. That's something we haven't. And we still have no idea really how it works. And that's just fantastic. And there's a pure joy about nature in the sense that a small child who's still trying to figure out the world around them can't even speak yet will be hypnotized by a butterfly. That's the kind of essence of nature I think I like to think I've, I've carried on the 28 years I've been living so far. And at the end of the day, yeah, that's, that's what I love it. I love it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. You were like, went from sad boy to like, <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah and, and the sad boy stuff sort of you know motivates you to make you a happy boy again so it's yes i love yeah. it oh pete i love you <laughs> <laughs> don't hear that very often but yeah <laughs> you, you just made my morning yeah that and That's that you right. said fuck dominoes fuck little caesars me yeah <laughs> like, like, domino, domino's is my first job so i'm more than happy to fuck fuck over. Domino's for real yeah yeah they're in real environment. Ten years ago, ten, that's my ten-year anniversary. So what's the Domino's? Bloody hell! Damn. Time. Yeah. Congrats. We should order pizza. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm John, something sorry. going on where we are introducing way too much nitrogen into the soil to grow the tomatoes that make the pizza sauce, and ultimately, yeah. <laughs> it's like almost tantamount to environmental suicide. Absolutely. <laughs> bring it full. Bring it full circle back to. Seth. Absolutely. It's not full circle. You're just doing a kickflip. Like that is not full. You're being an oh, asshole. Do I need to rap? <laughs> no. Oh. Dear God, no. Yeah. So Pete, I don't know how. If did you do the? Cha- I mean, you do the challenge every day. Like you are the challenge. Pretty, pretty, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the way that Brett and I, we were kind of farting around thinking about how we would want to do this. Brett made a skit. So for your entertainment, he Excellent. made a video. I took videos and pictures of my observations. And I think what we'll do is perhaps we will kind of demonstrate these things for you. And then you can critique us and talk about our naturalistic intelligence and lack thereof. So, so there are two videos. The five minute video is the one where I'm actually walking in nature and trying to do something rather serious. The skit is just absolute absurdity. It's about two minutes worth of stuff that will probably fry your brain. That's all right. That's exactly my kind of humor. <laughs> Why are you so like self-conscious, Brett? Because one demonstrates something like a quasi-naturalistic intelligence. The other one is a spoof of naturalistic intelligence and how some of that might go a little bit too far. Okay, okay. I'm fucking concerned now. Oh, I'm intrigued. I want to see yeah. this straight away. You might okay. want to see that one. So what we'll do, we'll start with mine then, and I'll wait for yours to re-download because clearly my computer hates you. This almost sounds like a statement of pride, like unplayable. Sounds like Titanic. <laughs> Not even God himself could play it. Yeah, it's art and a crochable. Absolutely. You know. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm just going to narrate. I didn't make a fucking skit. I'm just going to narrate. <laughs> Immediately upon walking into the forest, I was assaulted. There was a, a huge fucking orb weaver right in the middle of the trail. And it's, this is a mountain biking trail. And so I was like, what the fuck is nobody mountain biking? And I saw several people mountain biking. It's seven miles of mountain biking trails. And orb weavers apparently like to make their web in big wide open spaces. Their webs are messy as fuck. 
So I, ba I actually saw a fly, a little tiny fly land straight into it right before I almost went face first. And this motherfucker reacted so quickly. He grabbed that shit and just snatched mm. it. And it was amazing. And I don't think I've ever seen that in real time. So that mm. was pretty like, and I hate spiders, by the way. I do not like spiders. I like, I love lizards. I love snakes. I love reptiles. I love a lot of other insects. Mm. Spiders, for some reason, can get fucked. And that's a good, very good reason for that, because they reckon it is the genetic memory from when we were apes evolving in the savannah to basically avoid something that was very small and it'd be very hard to detect otherwise, but potentially very deadly. And that's why you see spiders and snakes that sort of still reside as these sort of chief phobias amongst people, because genetic memory saying that could be really deadly, avoid it at all costs, basically. Right. So when people say, I don't know why, but whenever I see a spider, I just want to, want to run out of a room. It is based on a very real reaction to fear, basically. So yeah, you're completely justified in feeling that. Even, even I disagree with it. I think spiders are lovely, but they're not weird like that. I find all animals lovely. I find that their predator response like that, that you described it was so quick. I think that's like a thing of beauty. In the same way you've seen a lovely sunset or watching a herd of gazelles run around is beautiful. I find that predator response from a spider beautiful in the same way. So yeah. the other thing I saw was I had never in my life seen a black widow and there were mm. black widows everywhere, dozens of them. And um, so here's me. So you see her. When I tell you, it is motherfucking spider season out here in these woods. It is motherfucking spider season, bro. So, there, so you can't see it because obviously my video intelligence, is, as we've demonstrated, is poor. But mm. the webs were so much tighter and smaller. And these black widows seemed very smart. They were so much smaller than I had expected. Mm. They were, you could almost not even see them or even see the little diamond on the back. But they were off to the side as compared to the orb weaver, which was in the middle. The yeah. black widows were kind of, they seemed smarter. They were like, no, we're going to hide off to the side and catch you by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Black, black widows are basically just like the emo goth kid who lives in their parents' basement. They're not really <laughs> showy at all. Generally, with these sort of creatures, the more dangerous, the more skulky it's going to be. The big, flashy, showy ones, they do bugger all, basically. It's the it's quiet kids you've got to be careful of, basically, in the spider world. Right. These mm. spiders, I was like, what the fuck? They, like, make these, like, almost nets, out, and they're all over the floor, and they're kind of mm. in the trees, and they're a, a hot mess. I still don't know what kind of spider they are, but I was looking them mm. up, and... I know in Australia, they have these funnel spiders yeah. and they're like the most poisonous spiders in Australia, I think, or something like that. Venomous. Yeah. Yeah. Venomous. Sorry. That's right. Okay. Um, so, so, so venomous when it's in, when you're bitten and it's all injected into the bloodstream and then poisons when you ingest it. Perfect. Perfect. Damn. Look at how dumb I am. No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, this, is, this is my very niche thing. If, yeah. If someone talked <laughs> to me about cars, I wouldn't know what the fuck I was talking about. And then I found these, like the hillbilly shrine oh excellent wow that's beautiful oh wait a second there you are <laughs> so this is about the time when i realized sticks are for clearing so i grabbed a stick and started clearing my way i'm sorry i felt really bad leave no trace but i was watching like this squirrel throw a bunch of shit from a tree and so i didn't feel so bad for clearing the spiders because yeah. i'm like i have to just be me Mm. Well, at the end of the day, there's lots of animals as they go through doing their thing. They are disturbing the vegetation as they go. That's basically what large mammals do. So as long as you're not completely trashing the place, you're bashing around with a stick for a little bit. It's <laughs> just all part of the, the massive chaos of nature. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, so, we, we have done that living almost anywhere under pre-industrial conditions, going through places, clearing areas, and 
not much worse than, well, en masse, we might be. Well, we are, but rhinos yeah. will knock some stuff over and the great apes, I'm sure, will knock some stuff around too. Oh, great apes are messy as shit. Yeah, totally. Let me see. Oh, no. Oh, there he is. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a big one. Uh huh. Have we got is that a recluse? I'm, uh, it's, no, it's... recluse has got finer legs, like lighter brown. This one's. Okay. Yeah, Dark, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't want to put a, a bottle cap or anything next to that for scale. It was about three inches, Ooh. three or four inches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a wide boy or well, more like a wide girl. Absolutely. Yeah. Very big. So I'm like filming this and then this motherfucker pops up out of nowhere like a goddamn mushroom. So I'm filming. <laughs> it's the Blair Witch. <laughs> but he's just biking through and i'm like bro like beware you get a black widow to the face motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> probably the second most common cause of mortality amongst bikers in the states i hear face widows, face widows. <laughs> <laughs> oh there was some shit falling on my head and i'm like what the hell is it water particulate matter and so i found these little walnuts i'm pretty sure they're walnuts but it looks like a walnut to me. And then I found that they were kind of opened and I'm like, I know there's a squirrel up there eating it. So then I was kind of like looking for Mr. Squirrel and he was up there indeed eating the oh. walnut. Yeah. yeah. So he was up high, shaking the trees. He was a tree shaker. And your squirrels are actually meant to be there because we've got a load of your American gray squirrels in Britain and they basically mostly wiped out our native squirrel species. Assholes. Yeah. It's just Victorians, basically. Victorians were prime assholes in seeing animals elsewhere in the world and going, oh, that looked nice in my garden. So they brought over a load of grey squirrels and stuck them in their big estates. They got out and they basically have a disease called squirrel pox, which they're literally squirrel pox, yeah, which they're resistant to, but our reds and the red squirrels, not so much. So by about the 1980s, the red squirrels basically left in islands where they can't swim to or the far reaches of Scotland, and Northern England, the rest of the country, the greys have sort of kind of taken over. At the end of the day, the grey squirrels are what most people's first nature experience. Like they're very happy to live in the city parks. So that's many people's only experience of nature. So can't fold that but yeah if i could press a button that would get rid of all the gray squirrels in britain i would do something genocide squirrel genocide really pete yeah it's, it was a tricky thing it's not the squirrel's fault it's ours and it's a common method like invasive species are the second most problematic leading cause of species decline around the world i mean it's not just american gray squirrels we've got japanese knotweed himalayan balsam american red signal crayfish and basically the problem is with the species and ecosystems they're always in flux and they're incredibly complex things. We still don't quite have the idea of how they work. But if you have something, the species from an ecosystem that's evolved for millions of years of separation, going into another system that's again involved with millions of years of separation from that. And if that species doesn't do well and it does well, then it's more likely to basically be knocking out the species that has evolved within a sort of, I don't like using the word equilibrium because it's not really such a thing as balance in nature, but at least adapted to that environment and that can make things go a bit skewed. So not all alien sort of non-native species have a bad effect, but sometimes they do. And when they do, it can be really quite nasty. And many species have gone extinct as a result of that. I mean, the case in point is New Zealand, where half their bird species have gone extinct and a large majority of them have gone extinct through invasive rats and cats and stoats eating the eggs and chicks, basically. So do ecologists basically go around and clean up the mess that people are making? Like, they're just kind of, oh, fucker, really? You just brought some squirrels pretty, over? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean, I weren't really ecologists 200 years ago. So, yeah, we're sort of saying that in, in, in retrospect now. But, like yeah, saying, piper. oh, fucker, really? 
totally that's a lot of it and there's a lot of ecologists in britain who spend a lot of money trying to get rid of japanese knotweed uh, which is difficult to get rid of when, once it takes root our consultancy we specialize in the ecology and the conservation of water voles which are the rodent which inspired ratting wind in the willows it used to be really common now there's probably fewer than about seventy-five thousand water voles left in england and wales now bearing in mind water voles they're a rodent that's about the size of a rat it should be in their millions this is really not the, ca the case as it should be and part of the main reasons for their decline, through habitat simplifying, so making habitat not as complex as it used to be, but that's also allowed the American mink, which basically escaped from fur farms or was deliberately released by animal rights activists who don't know any better. They basically devastate the water vole because where they evolved in separation, the mink can hunt the water vole in the burrow, it can also hunt them in the water. It's like the Terminator and the water vole is a little hairy Sarah Connor that just can't do anything. And a large part of water vole conservation is killing mink. And mink are beautiful animals. I don't think it's their fault at all. It's our fault to put them in that situation. But again, it comes down to this idea of you can't necessarily give these animals, these species, moral agency in the same way the wolves aren't evil because they hunt deer. Right. It's not the mink's fault. Um, but equally, you can't be like, oh, mink should still be let to live. But that comes right. to the expense of wiping out native species. Interesting. Um, so you're God over there. Ecologists are kind of like... <laughs> playing God. Yeah, it's a very fine line, and I think a lot of what I do, would have, I would have a lot of arguments with Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park over what was playing God or not. What do you think about like companies like Colossal Bioscience who are trying to work on de-extinction? Um, yeah, it's a really interesting it. one. It's a really interesting one. I could justify it if you're bringing back species which still basically have an ecological role and would still be here today. And in that context, you could easily say that mammoths do have a role today because if it wasn't for us, a mammoth probably wouldn't be extinct. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pleistocene overkill hypothesis. Basically, when humans first arrived on the scene, when we left Africa and started colonizing all different continents around the world, every continent, big island, had a megafauna. The only continents we'll find the sort of fairly decent megafauna competition today are in Africa and South Asia. And that's because they evolved alongside humans as we were evolving. So, you know, they learn our tricks of the trades and how to avoid us and basically find a rough sort of equilibrium of us. But when we reached Australia, when we reached the Americas, when we reached Europe, when we reached Madagascar, New Zealand, we arrived with an intelligence and an arsenal of weapons that had never been seen in any species that had evolved before. So within a few thousand years of humans arriving, in Australia, you see the extinction of the giant wombats at the size of rhinos, the ducks that were six foot high, the marsupial lions that are six meter long Komodo dragons. You see the mammoths, mastodons, saber-toothed cats, ground softs, giant camels, giant armadillos, giant beavers, short-faced bears. I could go on and go on. America had so much megafauna, but all wiped out in a few thousand years. In Europe, the elephants, mammoths, cave bears, etc. And then in Madagascar, giant lemurs, elephant birds, the moas, and the half seagulls in New Zealand too. And basically, there's some people who argue it's climate, but the thing is, the revive there was, you know, these all happened after the ice age, or just as the ice age training out, or just before the ice age. But when we talk about the ice age, it's not one ice age on its own. It's lots of ice ages and warm periods in the middle. We are in a warm period right now. We're in a, what's called an interglacial, and the fauna the animals between these interglacials didn't really change much even though the climate changed a little bit slightly each interglacial so that didn't really hold water the only thing that was different was humans arrived on the scene um, with all this weaponry and we know that people were killing mammoths in the whole herds driving them off cliffs and if you're an animal which has maybe one or two offspring in your lifetime it has a 24 month gestation period and if you're putting enough pressure on that species you can wipe it out fairly easily um, so that's why you lose your big animals before you lose the small ones because they're not as well adapted to this intense pressure we put on them. 
it, it seems like what has happened is we've become pretty much the, not exactly, but almost the, the last surviving megafauna. And we have tried to supplant all the things that would have normally been maybe apex predators in those areas. Yeah. And, and yep. what we're not sufficiently providing for that role have things, I guess, in balance in a way that we would have seen before. We yeah. Talked. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we don't function the same way an actual predator would. We're very removed from the ecosystem as a whole. And particularly with, with predators as well, it's not necessarily about removing numbers, reducing numbers. It's about changing behavior. So you may well have heard about the, how wolves changed Yellowstone National Park after they were reintroduced. Oh, okay. That wasn't by reducing the number of elk. It was by changing their behavior. Basically, I mean, rather than hanging about in a little valley where they can easily be trapped, they would avoid the places wolves could easily kill them. They'd always be on the move because you never know when a wolf would be around the corner. You never stayed in the same place for too long. And that allowed us vegetation to recover. And it's a problem we see over here in the UK. I mean, the last wolves were probably hunted out in Britain. I mean, my boss is actually writing a book about it at the moment, because it's a very uncertain date, but probably about 500 years ago, 400 years ago. And what you see are people trying to restore habitat parts of the UK and the uplands, but it's really hard to do so because any of the trees they plant or the vegetation they're trying to allow to regenerate naturally is just eaten by deer like that, because there's 14 mm -hmm. red deer that stay in the same valley they don't need to move, why would they? And they just see anything you're trying to recover as a free meal. Whereas if you had wolves back there, they would keep those animals on the move all the time. You basically, you want to scare these animals shitless if you want to get nature recovering. And that is the kind of problem we're left with. But even that could be artificial because at the end of the day, wolves are seen as a top predator now, but in this sort of Pleistocene baseline, which ecosystems have basically evolved alongside. So the plants and animals you see today, pretty much all evolved and applied to seeing alongside these big animals like mammoths and saber-toothed cats who've now wiped off the face of the planet and it may well have been the case that you know yes deer would have been moved by wolves but would mammoths have been moved by saber-toothed cats in the same way probably not because it, those saber cats are big they're not big enough for a mammoth right okay i'm going to push back on on some of this with you pete because this is my issue with ecology and mm. my issue with also ted kaczynski is he talks about the horrors of technology and the industrial revolution has ruined everything and fuck all of you guys so all of you should die and we can just rewild everything but the truth is, let's say we've got your 14 red deer and then you introduce the wolf, right? Mm. Let's say you reintroduce the wolf. Now the deer have nowhere to go because there's 18 housing developments next door. So Not necessarily. I mean, if you look at landscapes over in the uplands where I'm talking about, it is very sparsely populated. And that's often what you find with most parts of Europe really is you'll have these urban centers but then a lot of the countryside is actually a lot less populated than it was even 200 years ago, simply because there isn't really much of an economy left there. I mean, within the uplands of Britain, there is still sheep farming that goes on, and that basically creates a landscape that Beatrix Potter wrote about and is now a World Heritage Site because of this sort of cultural landscape. But from a farming point of view, there's no profit from it at all. And the only reason it's kept going because it's because of subsidies provided by the state. So are you saying that we can't rewild everything, but we no, should rewild pockets where we can absolutely absolutely because there are some areas where natural geology the soils just mean that trying to farm it is just really uneconomic and all you do is you basically bash and trash and bastardize the land for a pen but these are the areas where we need to be restoring nature where we need to be ensuring that we have thriving natural communities where basically we've got the natural world and effectively, we now know that the natural world is absolutely pretty essential for regulating clean air, clean water, storing carbon. Those are the economic arguments, if you like. You know, me being the romantic I am, I go for the moral reason that it's right. We need to hold on to nature as much as possible. As much as I enjoy living in a nice rural area, there's a lot of land per person here. And so, so then wouldn't this be an argument for something like 
concentrating human activity into cities so that you can keep them kind of in some ways cloistered away from the natural world in the way that we built our environments anyway. There's almost no nature left in most mm. of these anyway, and then allowing the natural worlds to undergo an evolution, not with much of our intervention, except that we're removing ourselves, and then to allow these ecosystems to interact and co-evolve, and wouldn't that kind of happen on its own? I mean, I definitely still think there's a role for people out in the countryside. At the end, and at the end of the day, I'm a country born myself, and I don't want to deny people the right to be where they've always wanted to live. But it merely comes down to how we use that land. We've got to ensure that in the way the planet's going, we're going to do that as sustainably as possible. Yeah. I mean, E.O. Wilson came up with the great theory of half Earth, that really sort of safe biodiversity in the planet. We need to dedicate half the Earth over prioritizing it for nature. I mean, on the face of it, I think it's really good. I haven't really looked at much into how that would work. But I think fundamentally, you almost need to look to an approach that is a bit of everything. And then you talk about rewilding, which is a hot topic. That found its origin with two American biological scientists. And they basically focused it as the three C's. And those three C's were cause, corridors, and carnivores. Mm. Now, your cause are these big areas, which are your wildland areas where you have relatively little human intervention, nature takes priority, but they're not taking up the whole countryside. I think that's a key point. Think about having core areas, but not necessarily ones that sort of mean that rural land is a no-go and we need to stay in the cities. But in between that, you have the corridors and that's your land sharing. We're always going to need to feed people. We're always going to have other land uses in the countryside. And it's about finding ways that species and processes can move between these core areas and through these corridors, through this land sharing, which basically is a lot of what we're doing already, mm -hmm. just on a bigger scale. So I think that's where it comes from for me is I don't want to ban people from nature because fundamentally we are still a part of nature. And you can go to Europe and see some amazing natural habitats that are coming online or being restored now, but people are still very much a part of it. And you've also got to bear in mind that particularly if you want big animals back, you are going to be able to do that in smaller spaces that are managed as well. I mean, you talk about South Africa, you know, those animals in many cases aren't necessarily roaming freely. They're in these reserves, which are big, but are fenced. And all to maintain genetic integrity, they're moving animals from reserve to another 300 miles away all the time. It's not ideal and it's not a purist vision of, of wild nature. But if you want to have big wildlife in an Anthropocene where we still want to have a thriving society, sometimes you're going to have options like that as well. Yeah. Well, and the fact that there's a company doing it, I think, I don't know that a lot of people know this kind of stuff, but I think if they have any kind of naturalistic intelligence, they are aware well, that's it. I was wondering if they watched Jurassic Park and they watched the dinner scene, which is when I was a kid, I used to go, oh, bring on the dinosaurs. But now it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. Because there's a brilliant, absolute masterclass from Jeff Goldwyn doing this whole, you, you, you saw this amazing thing and then you, you packaged it and you patterned it and you sat on a plastic lunchbox and you're selling it. You're selling it. I just thought, oh, that's such a brilliant sort of takedown on commercial mindset. Whenever it sees anything of sort of sheer natural beauty, it's to find some way to make this sort of natural gain or dominance over it. I do want to really watch that film. They're still like, yeah, but we're still going to do it though. <laughs> like, yeah, this is the point entirely. It's, it's, um, but I think but that is the paradox of Jurassic Park because you come out of it seeing, wow, yeah, it's a terrible idea. But if a real world Jurassic Park, Jurassic World opened, it's, oh, I still want to go see some dinosaurs. I still want to go. It's like SeaWorld. Yeah. It's SeaWorld. People are like, I kind of still want to swim with the dolphin. I want to ride a, a, a brontosaurus. I mean... Yeah, this is the real danger, though. This is the real problem is, and I think you're right, it's not about reintroducing, it's not about any of this stuff, it's about human behavior and what Absolutely. we value. And I think this Completely. culture, I mean, we've tried to, we've brought back a little bit of tribalistic shunning for the people who go to like SeaWorld and things like that. They're kind of shunned by others. Mm. Certain groups will shun yeah, other groups for yeah. that. 
yeah. but not enough. <laughs> There's not enough shunning. Bring back mm. shunning. Oh, just, to be honest, the whole conservation world, from the way I see it, within our conservation world is shunning. Everyone's disagreeing with each other on how to do things. Like, And people on the outside, what are you talking about? Like, the world's burning. But I suppose it's the same any industry, really. Yeah, everyone's always sort of disagreeing with one another. But I think the key thing, or the key difference in conservation compared to a lot of the other natural sciences is the fact that unlike, say, ecology or evolution or animal behavior, conservation is not a science that just is. It's a science that takes human decision to do. Conservation, mm -hmm. all these human fictions, is a human decision to do something. Right. And going back to your point, it's fundamentally, therefore, about dealing with people and mm -hmm. dealing with how we value things. I mean, ultimately, I went to conservation because there was way my... my Hero and role model was a guy called Gerald Durrell, who basically pioneered. Not Gerald Durrell. No, Gerald Durrell. Don't you ever see the Durrells, the TV show? Yeah, Gerald Durrell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Gerald Darrow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, Gerald Durrell was basically the guy who pioneered the idea of breeding endangered species. He created like a training center for people around the world to come learn. But he had a great sort of way of summing up why he did. And he just said that the natural world is giving me the most beautiful, wonderful existence. And me doing what I do is basically tipping the matter of mm -hmm. saying, thank you for mm -hmm. you know, this amazing thing. I'm going to put something back to you. I and that's that. basically my justification for it. Um, and also the fact that my life is short, it's going down the pan and I want to play my part in helping restore that. And it would be easy for me to say, I want to be a behavioral scientist and just sort of sit around studying badges all day and uh, get some wonderful well-being from that. But what is that going to contribute to a mark on the world? Probably not much. But by going into conservation, Ooh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's great, but yeah, you know, I've, I've got a different kind of attitude to that. And <laughs> the trouble is, once you go into conservation, though, it's about dealing with people. Um, and you'll find a lot of people with conservation scientists who are not people people, but it's all about politics and sociology, mm -hmm. knowing how others think and being engaging. Interesting. So, so you would say that you need a certain level of inter interpersonal intelligence to be able to be a good ecologist or a good naturalist. Certainly more of conservation. Probably maybe it's not quite as essential as an ecologist, but actually most of the jobs as an ecologist are commercial jobs where you're dealing with people who want to destroy the natural world. So actually, yeah, a lot of it there as well, because you're dealing with people who are fundamentally working against your interests. So yeah, although I would describe myself as an introvert with occasional bursts of extrovert nature, but I do realize that I have to be sort of upfront and uh, dealing with people. And that is a really key skill to it. As yeah. much as I want to be a bit of a new scavenger and just sort of hide away the animals all day. Yeah. And that's, it's, it is the case that even if you present the most well-reasoned arguments for things, if people don't like you, they're going to find ways to undermine the thing you're trying to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. You need to be able to yeah. systemize and explain yeah. it well. And by the way, also get people to care about the position enough by in some ways identifying with or agreeing with your passion in that direction. Yeah, completely. And I think that's it. You do have to have a thick skin. A lot of conservationists and ecologists by nature don't like to upset people. But when you're dealing with people who don't give a crap about that, who are trashing the land, be they developers, big landowners, etc., they often know these people bend over backwards for them. And that's what often happens. So yeah, I think you do have to be able to sort of take a stand a bit more. And actually, I think that's why you see some of the strongest campaigners. So people like Chris Packham, who's one of the leading nature presenters in this country, have Asperger's because it just gives them the sense of I've got a mission. Uh, <laughs> and by not caring what people think, I can say what I like. Yeah. You know, and that's been a real advantage. <laughs> so you're like, if you are on, on the spectrum, 
you should try conservation. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It, it works in Silicon Valley. I didn't see that it? coming. That's one of the best ideas there. <laughs> I did not. I did not. I did not anticipate that we would be calling all people with Aspergers to rewild. But I like it. As a non-Aspie, I do have a a, a question, and that is. When, uh, so, so when you think about how it is that we took over the natural world in, in such dramatic fashion, in such a short time, pretty much invading mm. every area and uh, just uh, upending all kinds of natural ecologies uh, in ways that mm. we understand that are also harmful to us. I also think about how when we try to intervene, how very often it becomes difficult to imagine second and third order effects beyond the thing that you think that you're doing. Have you ever seen an instance in which an attempt to conserve something, rather than resulting in the net positive that we're hoping will actually will happen, there was a detriment in some area that was actually unpredicted because the system itself was so complex that you couldn't foresee the outcomes? It happens very frequently, but the problem is, again, because conservation and ecologists don't like bad news, they often won't publish bad news itself. So <laughs> there are plenty of failures, but they don't often get reported. It no, happens very regularly. One that you could talk about that would help to kind of illustrate the point? The white-tailed eagle. So it's a species which used to be found all over the British Isles. But again, through persecution, it's mostly wiped out from most of Britain by about the, the 1600s. And the first attempt to reintroduce the species in the 1970s was an absolute disaster because partly they were reintroducing them in the last place they were found. Now, a big error, particularly in the British conservation scene, is assuming that the last place you find a species is the habitat it prefers. That Very makes often no sense. The case. It's the survivorship bias. It's completely it. And the last place these eagles are found were isolated points in the west coast of Scotland. And the west coast of Scotland is pretty inhospitable in most cases. It's windy, it's wet, winter can kill you very quickly, food is pretty thin on the ground. It's not ideal, uh, but they attempted the first reintroduction on a remote island in the Western Isles. And yeah, it did not go very well at all because it was a bit like trying to release something into a slightly wetter version of Mad Max Apocalypse landscape. Great film. So there's Absolutely. like eagles oh, yeah. walking around, like limping and... Totally. Yeah. Witness me. And oh, it's great. <laughs> I'm already getting ready to deck out my van with spikes and skulls for the incoming climate apocalypse. But, you know. <laughs> Mad Max Eagle meme coming yeah. soon. Can't wait. <laughs> wow. No, but this is great because I think this is my beef. And I've never mentioned this on this podcast, I don't think, about effective altruism is we have this utilitarian ideology on which I'm certain a lot of conservation <clears throat> is probably focused on in some way with some outcome as being the ultimate ideal. So in effective altruism, the ultimate ideal is to reduce human suffering. But mm. they have this concept called cluelessness where basically we don't know, like you said, the first second, we barely know the first order effects. We don't know the second order, third order side effects. What are the implications of introducing that eagle? We really have mm. little to no idea what yeah. the long-term effects of these things are gonna be. But the best thing you can do is ensure that you're restoring species or habitats that should be there. I mean, that, that's your point A. And that's why, as I say, invasive species can have such destructive impact if they're able to survive and thrive in it, basically. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm doing a project where I'm breeding glowworms in captivity for a trial release. And it's the first time anyone bred glowworms for a conservation project in a formal setting, as in people have bred glowworms as a hobby. There have been glowworm colonies that have appeared very suspiciously and people think they've been introduced from the quiet, but there's been nothing that's done where it's a full public, here's a brief release project, we're writing it up, da 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 da, da. Yeah. But, you know, 
while we have a rough idea of what glowworms want, we don't have the exact specifics of what they want. And we're working on a trial site at the moment where we're sort of creating a habitat from scratch pretty much. It's quite risky, but we won't know until we try. Mm -hmm. And I released about 600 glowworms last year, the larvae, uh, 600 this year, uh, and we'll probably release sort of maybe 300, 400 over the next two years to try and make that robust population. And that's here, robust, big numbers, reducing, reintroducing the right age when they're young larvae, when they're the most plentiful, when they haven't adapted to captivity. We've created sort of long grass for the snails and there's a nice sort of humid ditch next to it, so that should attract snails in as they are. Put in log piles and should have got somewhere to sort of overwinter. So we're doing things as informed as we can. But, you know, we're dealing with a system, again, that's part of the beauty of what ma makes nature so amazing, is it? It's so chaotic and we don't understand it. Right. And we're just trying to sort of piece together a jigsaw that is 1,000 pieces strong, but we're only working on 20 pieces and right. each piece is sort of like completely different ends. We don't know how to connect them. I don't know how much time you have, Pete. Okay. We haven't gotten to Brett. I know Brett's fucking going to kill me if we don't play. Yeah. His so, 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 Pete, which would you like to see? I quite like to see the funny one. Actually. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go well. for it. <laughs> okay, great. Here's what no one knows about squirrels. So squirrels are considered huh? the greatest threat to our entire electrical grid, <laughs> including all of the cyber espionage going on around the world. This is because they love to chew through wire. Now, what I haven't told you is <laughs> that Russian and Chinese governments are populating the Northeast with fungi genetically engineered to make the squirrels eat through wires faster. In this way, they're using our natural systems, animals, which by the way, are synanthropic, which means that they kind of evolved to work or live in harmony with things that humans do. They're gonna use these to undermine our capacity to engage in any kind of retaliation the moment that they decide to launch a normal war, a normal physical war. We won't have access to our satellites. We won't have access to electricity. All of our energy supplies will go away all because of fungi and squirrels and plastics. Oh, and by the way, they're disrupting our endocrine systems, making us weak and making us ready to be subservient. You have been warned. What the fuck is wrong with you? And remember, I wasn't here. You don't know this. And you were also never here. So how did you get access to a recording of my fever dream? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Hold on. What the fuck is... Okay. Oh my god. Hold on. Okay. Alright, wait a second. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, all I was hearing was the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a psycho. Trolls, first people? You are a psycho. <laughs> For sharing that because I absolutely had to. And the reason that I did was that it's, I think that the problem with the way that people can grab onto a little bit of data and then try to extrapolate into large scale pictures also winds up becoming something so strange and conspiratorial that it was worth just sitting down and exploring the fact that I had seen a squirrel. I knew I was going to do something strange. I was hiding in a bush. The recording went terribly. So I redid it, but just to show that you can do this stuff. This was on, the redo? This is the redo. <laughs> you, you can do this on the fly and you can kind How of- How long did you spend this discount store bane? <laughs> <laughs>
like a jock strap. I put a jock strap on my face, HEPA filter, forced air, and it keeps me, it keeps my testosterone from being destroyed by xenoestrogens. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, Pete, I'm sorry. I never saw that video before. That was, this was my- I think it's all part of the beautiful tapestry of our reality is that we can be expressed in so many ways. Oh my God, this was too, this was too much. Now, okay, so let me share with you now his, his real Wait, one. Right? The, the real, real one? Okay. The real, real. Yeah. It's buffering. Oxygen rapidly attenuated. Under such circumstances, most things cannot survive. <laughs> He took this so fucking seriously. Especially people. <laughs> Especially. Dude. Oh, it's, it's going to play like this. It's going to be terrible. So. Well, I no, mean. It, yeah. It already looks like it's got mean potential. Yeah, I feel like. Oh, it's lower than it would be at sea level. And because of this. <laughs> it does not want you to have your moment. I, oh. I just basically went to a went to a local park, started climbing around and just, you know, commenting on random things that I saw. That's the beauty of going out in nature. Perfect. A plus. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Yeah. So the idea of naturalistic <clears throat> intelligence, I don't think we've actually talked about this concept very much. We've been demonstrating mm. it as we often do on this podcast. This podcast is mm. very demonstrative of how we play with ideas. But this is actually not an official intelligence according to the theorist, Howard Gardner, Mm -hmm. but other people have kind of taken up for it and said, no, this is a thing. So the question is, what is an intelligence? And in terms of a naturalistic Mm. intelligence, there are certain constructs that they have assigned. So people with a high level of naturalistic intelligence are able to find common traits among things in nature. They're able to categorize Mm. things very well. They have Mm. pretty ordered hierarchical reasoning. They can rank and file things according to their significance or importance. They can perhaps predict first and second order consequences of introducing white-tailed eagles into the wet Mad Max territory. They have, (laughs) you know, an ability to identify with the things that surround them. So in your experience, do a lot of your colleagues exhibit these things or is there a variable degree to which they have those kind of attributes? But yeah, I was reading throughout this today. When first I was going through it, I was thinking, oh, this all sounds very familiar. And I think by and large, we do tend to share these particular traits because at the end of the day as well, it's, it's a world which to go into. I think you have to be pretty passionate about it, to be honest, because it's very low paid. So you are generally doing it for the love of it all. And the ones who go into the slightly better paying jobs, they tend to be really big commercial consultancies, state conservation. But I tend to find that you don't tend to see that same level of passion or sort of critical thinking outside as you do in a lot of the people in those fields. A lot of people you see working in the state bodies, I think, would quite happily switch to another government department if it meant the next big pay rise or or safe pension. And when you're out and about in nature, you don't tend to see the same sort of connection with the natural world. I think a lot of people, for example, granting the beaver licenses for releasing beavers in the UK probably even haven't seen a beaver in their life. So there is that kind of shame. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You never forget your first beaver. And it, uh, <laughs> I certainly have it, so, uh, love beaver. There's actually a, a small little beaver. I, I don't know what it is. It's a colony or something like that. Far away from me, about two miles away. I walk along this trail all the time. And oh, fantastic. I, and I see beaver out in the open exposed. 
<laughs> oh, what? So, so there's still dams and lodges and yeah, yeah, it's a very yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's tiny, but I actually have video of it somewhere where <clears throat> it was very upset that I was at the shoreline and it kind of swam in my general direction and then flipped its tail into the mm. water and splashed me and basically told me to go fuck yep. off. So, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. the beaver signal. Yeah. So go fuck yourself. And it also warns the other beavers. So they live in family groups as well. So it's they're looking out for its its mate and its kids when it's sort of splashing tail and say, guys, there's danger here. Scoop. Yeah. Basically. Actually, in a, a book I was reading by uh, a guy called Roy Dennis, um, who I've met a few times through work, and he's, he's an absolute legend. Uh, Roy is 82 and he's still going strong. And he's actually the guy who has reintroduced white-tailed eagles since that bad introduction. He's basically perfected it. Um, and he's led some very successful introductions of white-tailed eagles and ospreys and um, and red squirrels and other sort of things very successfully in Britain. Um, so he's an amazing conservationist. And he's got a, a book out at the moment, which is like a series of essays. And he's got one where he talks about how he can always kind of tell the knack of someone by the way they open the gate. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you see it open the gate, you know, your people might sort of try opening it one way and don't know why it comes that way until they figure, oh, it goes the other way. Um, or others who just very naturally go straight to it. And there are the people who say, right, I can see a scuff mark on the side there where the gate's been pushed aside on many occasions. Mm. That's where I've got to go. Or I can see that to put this gate back in, that the latch is clearly higher than the uh, the handle to put it back in. So I've got to raise the gate to stick it back in. And it's those kind of people who have that sort of knack when they're out and about, finding the feather, know where it's come from, uh, be able to identify um, you know, which plant's going to be out right now because of the season, all that kind of thing. And he makes a point a lot of people put in the high paying roles in conservation or ecology don't necessarily always have um, <laughs> this kind of style of learning and can't open gates in quite the correct way. And actually, it's quite a useful thing to have. Yeah, so I think that's where it comes to it, that a lot of the natural thinkers, yeah, would be in that category who could see a gate and know which way it opens fairly quickly. Interesting. That's um, in- so it's intuitive. Around them. Intuitive, yeah, yeah. There's a different level of interest or a different kind of interest. So someone like yourself is driven to actually have an impact on the natural world that could survive in ways that impacts humanity for millennia. Whereas someone working in a corporate or governmental setting, very often their incentives are simply the financial. And so once they get the reward of the paycheck, there really isn't necessarily an incentive, an internal drive to continue to do that that you're doing. And so they differentiated themselves from the natural world, almost in the way that we did with industrialization where you're no longer a yep. part of it you don't see it you don't you haven't interacted with an, an actual beaver and what you're thinking about is the human element which is it's the money coming in it's can i fund more projects how many people am i managing divorced once again from nature the fucked up part is that those institutions are the ones that actually have the greatest impact corporations and large scale mm. institutions have a mm. much more significant impact than poor pete over here yeah no offense, absolutely you know? But Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you're with your glow worms, like yeah. here's fucking Chevron over here yeah. with a bunch of button pushers and people yeah. in their environment are consultants who are basically a bunch of assholes. And Pete's yeah, over yeah, here yeah. dedicating his life to beavers and glow worms who really actually cares. Yeah, and you, you'll find that in Britain, you know, there's a huge NGO network. So these charities basically who go out and do nature conservation. And that tends to be where you find the passionate people because, you know, they do feel they are doing stuff that's direct and actually helping make a difference. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is very little money in it and you don't go into it for that. Um, but Pete, also, I, so I was watching this documentary. I can't remember which one it was. It was one basically talking about maritime conservation. My husband is very interested mm. in this. I think in his second career, he will do coral reef restoration and things like that. Yeah. 
but what we were finding is that there's really no way to regulate commercial fishing. And Mm. in fact, a lot of these places that say that they've kind of like safely farmed the salmon or the tuna, tuna, these NGOs that stamp these products, these commercially available, um, fish products, they're bullshit. So how do you differentiate between the good NGOs and the NGOs that just Mm. are trying to perpetuate themselves and signal. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. I think the best way to really want to go into it is, you know, really examine the accounts of some of these bodies, Uh, look at the real world outputs as well. uh, And see if they're just find the means. You do tend to find a lot of NGOs, the bigger they get, you know, the more like Icarus they try and reach for the sun. And that's where, you know, things can get dodgy. But equally, the smaller they are, they're more limited in what they can actually do. So it's very hard to find that sweet spot in the middle. Someone I know very well uh, used to work for a environmental NGO. Um, they actually went into conservation because they were sick of their job uh, dealing with human politics. They wanted to sort of give something back to nature. But in the end, they left because they found that that basically, although they were doing you know some field projects around the world quite well, they were effectively taking money from any old sort of give it and that would often be uh big oil companies companies with very dodgy human rights standards all in the name of greenwashing they'd throw money at them to say so that these big companies could say oh look we donated such and such to this ngo and that was their mo and basically their, their ceo uh would basically get crudy's funds by doing these big fundraisers uh, for wealthy people and be like okay look at the wonderful work we're doing how much for that and some one big oil company would say 10,000 and all it away and this guy lived for it he lived for chumming up with the rich and thought Greta Thunberg was a miserable sort and all the rest of it because you know she wouldn't you know if, if they tried to get hold of a project she would look into this this NGO's accounts and see from instantly they're working with people like Shell and all the rest of it and basically send them down. Is it is it possible to separate the funding source from the activity like if you take 10 million dollars from Chevron mm. And then just say, fuck off. I'm doing what I want to do. Like, yes, you're not going to get funded again, but mm. as do you, it do is you really difficult because we live in a world where it sounds like a trailer. We live in a world where it's very difficult to get money from the state, this kind of thing. And I think a lot of time that's comes down to the individual um, who's receiving the funds as to, you know, where, where the line, their standards lie. Exactly. What company is There's ethical? It. I mean, the companies yeah. don't have ethics. Companies have bottom lines. Yeah, yeah. And just, just an the- example. So Coca-Cola basically put a, sh- a ton of money into wetland projects. And there's, a- there's actually one beaver project um, in the UK that was funded largely by Coca-Cola. Sorry, not sorry money for causing massive pollution leaks outside their factories in Southeast Asia. Hmm. Um, and that's the reason they're doing wetland restoration, almost like an offset for the fact they basically screwed over uh, hmm. these habitats in Southeast Asia and the communities who rely on them. You're really hard. And you see now... Well, it's so much harder going into conservation from the human point of view than it is to stay just studying badgers and doing the animal behavior route. Um, but it's at the same time it's about trying to make a difference and give something back to the world. Right. You need both. I mean, you really yeah. do need the the aspies for the field work and then yeah. the uh, schmoozers for the other work because you have to work it from the inside. Because if you think about Coca-Cola, for example, they have on their box of cans recycle me i'll see you later and, th- and that gets down to the individual mandate of like mm, who should be mm. responsible for cleaning up the bullshit oh, completely <laughs> completely uh it's this right. idea of saying if you recycle you can save the planet which is being pushed so far up by these corporations while you know washing their hands of any responsibility 
Right. Um, so yeah, there is an element of that. I think the funding side of things too. That yeah, you yeah. can throw money at things, but change yourself as well. Yes, and and on we push. <laughs> so what we need to know from you mm-hmm. is it's really unfair for you to judge based on Brett's performance. <laughs> so so I, I would just like to say that my performance was stellar, and they're watching you. I'm looking at the Atlantic right now, so I'm looking towards the states it's over there. They're watching <laughs> you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so we need to know on, I'm going to, I'm just going to ask you these things because I think this mm. is the best way to get about it and make sure we get the answers to our questions yeah. on a scale of one to 10. What is your logical mathematical intelligence? Oh, three. I'm terrible at maths. Five. I don't know, but I'm really crap at it. Okay, um, I had to have a private tutor when I was at school for maths. I'm like, great. Okay. That sort of thing. All right. So what about spatial intelligence then? Your ability to rotate objects in your mind and find your way around? Not that great either. <laughs> Probably about six. Then <laughs> again, I'm pretty good at my version of driving. So <laughs> now I'll stick, it, I'll stick it at six. Six? Okay. Six, Le- edging on to seven if I'm driving. What about <laughs> linguistic intelligence? Your ability to communicate with words? I'll give myself eight. Okay. Yeah. I would too. I think that's a good one. What about interpersonal? Your ability to understand others and work with them? Oof, bloody hell. Depends what day you're asking, to be honest. Friends and family, to be honest. But I would go with seven today. I'm feeling positive. <laughs> today. All right. Yeah. What about intrapersonal? Your ability to understand yourself. Yeah. Oh, it's really on the spot. Six. I would say yeah. seven, but then there's days where I'm like, oh, maybe I don't really know who I am. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What about <laughs> your naturalistic intelligence? Oh, I'll go about nine on that. Okay. Very confident there. How about bodily kinesthetic, like your ability to move and use your body the way that you want to? Actually, no, I'll give myself, I'll give myself a seven for that. I've got a really weird body, but I think I can, yeah, figure out. We all do. Bodies are weird. Oh, dang. Okay. All right. So I'm giving, yeah. I'm giving you a nine. Yeah. Damn. Because <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I can't wow. do any. So, okay. That's... You're a great break dancer. Yeah, I do like a little dance. And people do say that my dance style is basically just sort of limmy and very sort of, yeah, little flowy. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. You sure seven? First, the first TikToks I do were dancing. So, yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah. Yeah, let's go with eight, actually. Okay. I like yeah. it. I like it. What about your musical intelligence? In what sense? As in listening to, playing? All. Oh. All. I'm going to go with seven on that. And finally, existential, which is not a real intelligence, according to Howard Gardner. I mean, but none of these technically mm-hmm. are, but existentially, like your ability to think about the larger problems than yourself and your immediate environment and your interest in those kinds of things. I would go with eight on that. You're completely modest. You're, you're over here yeah. working in a profession, <laughs> has all kinds of issues and winds up being thankless. Yeah. <laughs> I think you might also be undervaluing your mathematical intelligence or your logical, because I think there is a high degree of overlap. If you're able to understand hierarchies and kind of events and distributions, things that happen, Mm. you might be better at that, but also, and pattern recognition, but also Mm. different aspects, I think, of conservation ecology and these types of professions employ different skills so you might you make beautiful tiktoks and so i think your linguistic musical bodily kinesthetic and existential they dem they're demonstrated in your tiktok mm. well it's interesting i was having this chat with my, my sister-in-law last night actually just around sort of confidence and things because i mean when i was at school if i was about 14 15 16 I had a massive crash in confidence which i still don't think i would tardy recover from today so at times when 
I'm not particularly certain on something or with people who I don't feel I particularly know yet. I'll have a habit of mumbling, which I think for me is my leftover thing from when I was afraid of what I would say in, in school, whether it would be the wrong thing to say, and I'd mumble it out instead. And yet I think I feel more confident when I'm on a stage or TikTok or whatever, because <clears throat> it's not an individual who can sort of answer back or shut me down. So when you think about you know, what you're doing naturalistically, there, there must be an inherent kind of underlying calculus to what's going on in your mind. When you're thinking about the natures of the ecosystems and what might be required to support the, the introduction of glowworms into the wild, it's not a hard numerical calculation, but mm. there's an understanding of proportionality, the mm. relationships of things and how they will impact one another that is both logical and I think also mathematical. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's not kind of what I think. There's more than one way to approach what these things are, and that's why we're talking. Yeah, about yeah. This oh, really? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really, Brett? Okay. So what you? <laughs> wait, you I, know I'm not sure story. what you're getting at here. We'll, we'll, I'm the sure story we'll, uh... of how this season came to be is because yeah. Brett and I argue like cats and dogs about whether mm. or not these multiple intelligences exist and in what capacity. Mm. You are just well, kissing his ass. I am kissing his ass because, you know, he can do that breakdancey shit that I can't do. If you look at the way that he's broken these things down, my whole argument for why they don't really exist in the way that he proposes them is that they are able to be rounded up into higher levels of things that we already ordinarily defined as being smart. And so I am not conceding anything by saying these things i am demonstrating <laughs> that they are all bullshit intelligence like nature is chaotic and it's very hard to put yeah. and i see it kind of the opposite i see it that there are things that come together to form g but i think there's some shake at the bottom that mm. is not counted by g that may come together to form something else or several other things like i said there's g but maybe there's f <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's you know q it's not impossible it could be that we haven't ground it down yet to the mm. theory that it could be. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm not saying that the current definitions could not be improved, but I'm saying that multiple intelligence theory winds up failing as an alternative. Right. And what's your sample size of guests going to be to sort of work out if this thing does, does exist we or not? We, this is not scientific, bro. Like we are, <laughs> this is pure conjecture. And yeah. it's what we do here on this podcast is, and I just figured this out yesterday. On this podcast, we demonstrate how to play with ideas. We're doing it. That's what Brett and I constantly do. This one is pure play. Thank you for playing with us. No, it's been great fun. Loves it. Awesome. Enjoy the sun. Yeah. Oh yeah, not burn yet. Good. Okay, reapply, reapply. Oh man, being a ginger, it hurts. Thanks for playing in nature with us today. If you adore Pete like we do, you can find him on Twitter, but I found him on TikTok at Pete Cooper Wildlife. Highly recommend. And Brett's video is safely behind a paywall, but if you really want to see it, buyer beware. You can find our bonus content and much more at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter.